1988, and in Lighthouse Point, Florida, Yvonne Chouinard stands on a dock and shields his eyes from the sun. The Patagonia owner scans the expensive yachts anchored along the walkway. At the far end, he spots the 42-foot status symbol he's searching for. As he climbs aboard, an old man wearing a captain's hat pokes his head up from the cabin. Ahoy, Yvonne! Dr. Cammy? Yes, but call me Mike. Take a seat. I'll fetch us some chilled guava juice. With his snow-white beard and sailor's hat, Cammy doesn't immediately register as a management guru, but he used to be a strategist for Xerox and IBM. Now, he's a sought-after advisor to America's biggest companies. This seafaring business Yoda rakes in a million dollars a year, dispensing his wisdom. Guava juice in hand, Chouinard explains the dilemma that's brought him to Cammy. Thanks for seeing me. My problem isn't what you'd expect. Very soon, Patagonia's sales will pass $100 million a year. Our growth, it's relentless, and I don't like it. Deep down, I'm a craftsman, not a businessman. I see. Tell me, Yvonne, what would you do if money was no object? Hmm. I guess I'd like to spend my life sailing the South Seas. You know, searching for the perfect wave to surf. Seeking out the best place to catch bonefish. So why haven't you sold Patagonia and gone and done it already? Well, I'm pessimistic, you see. Pessimistic about our planet's future. I believe I should use Patagonia to help somehow. Kind of like the way we donate 1% of profits to environmental causes. So I guess I'm still in business so I can give money away. Cammy leans forward and locks eyes with Chouinard. That is bull Chouinard's mouth drops open in shock. Cammy leans in even closer. If you want to give money away, sell your business and start a foundation. Hell, if you sell Patagonia to the right people, they'll keep donating 1% of the profits because it's great marketing. But I worry what'll happen to Patagonia if I sell it. Cammy folds his arms and reclines into his chair. In that case, Yvonne, maybe you're just lying to yourself about why you're in business. Chouinard leaves the yacht even more confused than when he arrived. He came for answers. Now, he has to solve a riddle. If he doesn't want Patagonia to grow, but he won't walk away, then just what the hell does he want to do with it? If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of sighs guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Now, since you're a podcast listener, I'm sure you know all about how audio just does something to the imagination. So I'm really excited to tell you about how Audible's brand new exclusive thrillers are brought to life with that kind of captivating sound design, the eerie soundscapes and dynamic performances. There's one that caught my eye. I should say it caught my ear. 
It's an Audible original called Sleeping Dogs Lie by Samantha Downey. It details the aftermath of a local businessman's murder in Marin County, California, a once sleepy suburb now part of the bustling Silicon Valley area. And as an Audible member, well, you get to keep one title a month from their entire catalog, including bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible now free for 30 days. Head on over to audible.com slash BW or text BW to 500-500. That's audible.com slash BW or text BW to 500-500 and try out Audible free for 30 days. From Wondery, I'm David Brown and this is Business Wars. On the last episode, Patagonia struck gold with colorful, synthetic clothes that won over hikers and fashionistas alike. But while Patagonia boomed, the North Face battled to grow in a flat market flooded with cheaper Asian imports. Now, the North Face is trying to put the challenges of the 80s behind it with the help of its new owner, Odyssey International. And Odyssey's founder, Bill Simon, isn't looking for steady progress. No, he wants to scramble to the summit. This is Episode 4, Zen and the Art of Business. It's 1990, and in Berkeley, California, Simon is in the North Face conference room listening to a pitch from an unlikely businessman. That man is Scott Schmidt, And he's anything but slick. His shirt's untucked, his dirty blonde mullet's uncombed, and it's crowned with a tired-looking baseball cap. But in ski circles, Schmidt is a legend. He's an extreme skier. Uh, No, scratch that. He's the world's best extreme skier. A man who wows powder hounds with daring descents down sheer slopes where even the most minor error can be fatal. But a claim doesn't pay the bills, so now Schmidt is hoping to cash in on his daredevil reputation with a little help from the North Face. He stands awkwardly before Simon and lays out his vision. North Face gear is awesome, but it still falls short for skiers like me. I'm always having to make my own adjustments, like sewing on extra pockets or padding. What extreme skiers need is gear designed for them, like this. Schmidt hands Simon a hand-drawn illustration of a bright yellow and black ski jacket. The drawing's covered in notes about the jacket's features. Impact-protecting body armor, multiple zippers for ventilation, tougher fabric at friction points to reduce wear. There's even a sheepskin-lined pocket for sunglasses. The jacket's just the start. I've got ideas and designs for a whole line, from outer shells to base layers. I call it Steep Tech. Simon puts the illustrations down. Well, you've clearly put a lot of work into this, but it won't sell. Extreme skiing gear doesn't have a future because it's something only a handful of people can do. Schmidt tries to salvage his ailing pitch. Surely there'd be some crossover. Ordinary skiers love extreme ski movies, and I'm always meeting folks who want to do extreme skiing. Maybe they'd think the gear's awesome and buy it anyway, even if they don't need it. Simon sits back in his chair. 
Schmidt's got a point. Maybe some people will wear this stuff to broadcast their perceived prowess. Besides, an extreme ski line would also reaffirm the North Face as the go-to brand for even the most niche high-performance gear. Well, there might be a crossover effect, and that does happen with our Everest gear. <sighs> okay, okay, maybe there's something in a premium price specialist line. But don't expect much. I still doubt anyone's going to want this stuff. It's a downbeat assessment. But Schmidt doesn't care. The North Face is going to pay him to co-design his own ski wear line. And after years of living hand-to-mouth, even a small payday is cause for celebration. But while the North Face gets to work on steep tech, black clouds are descending on Patagonia. It's July 1991, and in Patagonia's offices in Ventura, California, there's fear in the air. The usual upbeat vibe is gone. Employees speak only in whispers, and all eyes are on the meeting room. Inside, there's a consultant, and he's here to call the ranks. Everyone recoils as the meeting room opens and the consultant steps out. He scans the open plan office and then makes a beeline to the desk of a woman with long, dark hair. As he leads her into the meeting room, she exchanges worried glances with her colleagues. Minutes later, she reemerges, eyes red with tears and newly unemployed. As the day continues, more fall. By late afternoon, 150 people are gone. That's a fifth of Patagonia's entire workforce. For a company that's long felt more like a family than a workplace, it's brutal. For most employees, Patagonia is a home away from home where they enjoy on-site childcare, munch freshly baked pineapple muffins and put work aside whenever the surf's up. As the day draws to a close, Yvonne Chouinard gathers the survivors together. Chouinard spent years talking about slowing Patagonia's rocketing growth. But today's cuts aren't a choice. They're a necessity, forced by the recession that's ravaging the nation. Today's been the darkest day in Patagonia's history. But it had to happen because one angry employee can't contain himself and cuts Chouinard off. Had to? I know the sales figures. We're on track to grow 20% this year. Chouinard turns to the employee. You're right. You're right. But we planned for 40% growth, and we hired and spent on that basis. The recession means retailers are ordering less, leaving us with excess inventory. Our bank is struggling, too, in cutting our credit line. Chouinard lets the news sink in before continuing. Truth is, we've been growing at an unsustainable rate. But that is never happening again. From now on, we grow sustainably. And though Patagonia's workforce doesn't know it, there's more change coming. After years of conflicted feelings, Chouinard's finally worked out what to do with Patagonia. It's late summer 1991, and just north of San Francisco, a group of exhausted Patagonia employees are sitting around a campfire. They've spent the day hiking, following Chouinard deep into the Marin headlands. And they're not the first. 
For weeks, Patagonia's 52-year-old leader's been taking employees on similar treks, treks he's using to instill a new business philosophy. And now that they're immersed in their surroundings, gazing out at the crashing waves of the Pacific under a canvas of stars, Chouinard begins today's lesson. Nature is threatened by an economic system that values short-term profit and relentless growth. At Patagonia, we want profit, but we do not seek growth. Our values come first, even if that means sacrificing sales. His face lit by the fire, Chouinard elaborates. We will minimize our environmental impact and will atone for the damage we do. We will either give 1% of sales or 10% of profits to environmental causes, whichever is greater. As the night continues, Chouinard turns shaman, doling out nuggets of homespun wisdom that mash up business theory, environmentalism, and mysticism. Let's learn from the Iroquois. They plan for seven generations. Only by acting as if we will be in business for a hundred years can we grow sustainably. In rock climbing, you can push yourself to the edge, but never over. It's the same for business. We must know our limits. Companies that try to have it all only die faster. We must teach the world that there's another way to do business. By the lesson's end, the employees around the campfire are converts. Patagonia is no longer just a company. It's an explorer heading into uncharted territory to reinvent how business is done. It's a January night in 1992, and Scott Schmidt is driving through midtown Manhattan. The extreme skiers feeling good. Last fall, the North Face introduced his SteepTech Extreme Ski Wear, and sales are surpassing all expectations. SteepTech's already become one of the company's best-selling lines. The North Face chalks up that success to Schmidt's fame, but that's not the only reason. Schmidt stops at a red light and peers around into the darkened streets. He's in a high-crime area of the city. Windows are broken and the walls covered in graffiti. But then Schmidt spots something unusual. He cranes his neck for a better look, and his jaw drops. No way! Across the street, a drug dealer's working the corner, and he's dressed head to toe in steep tech. As Schmidt drives past the dealer, he thinks, that guy's got to be a one-off. But he's not. Across the city, graffiti artists and corner drug dealers are turning the North Face's mountain gear into streetwear. They like the deep pockets, which are perfect for carrying spray cans and product. They appreciate how the company's bulky parkas make them look big. But most of all, they love how the North Face's apparel keeps them warm, even on the coldest nights. And this trend's just getting started. It's August 1993, and the Wu-Tang Clan's new track, Method Man, is taking the hip-hop scene by storm. The Clan are now MTV stars and in the video as they rap in a derelict building. Two of their entourage pose in red and yellow steep tech jackets. That video ushers in a love-in between hip-hop and the North Face. 
Soon, rappers from LL Cool J to Big L will be wearing North Face, and the notorious B.I.G. and Das FX will be name-checking the brand of their lyrics. With no planning at all, the North Face is crossing over from the slopes and into the inner cities. And where these rap stars lead, suburban America will follow. But the brand's new street cred has come too late to shore up its bottom line. Since 1988, North Face owner Odyssey International has been assembling an outdoor empire. It's bought not just the North Face, but many of its rivals, too. Yet just as Yvonne Chouinard warned Patagonia's staff around the campfire, companies that try to have it all only die faster. Odyssey is now in bankruptcy, tripped up by its rush to expand. With creditors baying for their money, Odyssey finds itself having to dismantle its outdoor empire. It sells off brands like Marmot and Sierra Designs. Then it puts the North Face on a corporate crash diet to get it ready for auction. Odyssey shuts 12 of North Face's 20 outlet stores. Their Berkeley factory also gets the chop. Now, just like Patagonia, the North Face will make its gear on the other side of the Pacific. And now that the bloodletting's done, Odyssey puts the North Face up for sale. It's May 1994, and in an Oakland courtroom, the North Face auction is underway. Bids opened at $33 million, but the price soon passed $50 million. Now, just two bidders remain. One is Deckers, a company that makes sandals. The other is a consortium led by two members of the North Face executive team. Decker's representative ups the stakes. $55.9 million. The North Face executives huddle briefly. $57 million. The woman from Decker's holds up her hands in defeat. But then, one of the earlier bidders rejoins the race. Raincoat manufacturer London Fog. $57.1 million. The North Face team winces. But there's no way they're walking away over $100,000. million. The judge looks at the man from London Fog and slowly raises his gavel. Going once, going twice, and sold! The North Face executives have won. And now they get to enact their master plan. And that plan is to take the North Face onto the stock exchange and use the money raised to turbocharge its growth. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. LinkedIn Jobs isn't just another job board. With a vast network of more than a billion professionals, it's the best place to hire. You'll get access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And if that sounds overwhelming, look, don't worry, it's not. LinkedIn Jobs makes the process easy and intuitive. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. If you're like me, hiring the best candidates for a job can often be about who you know, the connections you make. 
My favorite thing about LinkedIn Jobs is the ability to screen for the experience and qualities you're looking for and reach out directly, not waiting for the right person to come in over the transom, sifting through emails. It's actually fun to find people with the skills and backgrounds you need this way through LinkedIn Jobs. Often, you're making connections that help your business along the way. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash businesswars. You can thank me later. That's linkedin.com slash businesswars to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. It's July 1995, and in Kyrgyzstan, five of America's best climbers are closing in on the summit of Mount Patitsa. And they're here on the North Face's dime. When the company recruited the athletes into its new dream team, they could barely believe their ears. Now, they're being paid $75,000 a year to go climbing around the world in North Face gear. And to kick things off, they're taking on the fang-like peaks of this remote corner of Central Asia. But as they near the top, danger strikes. Dark clouds roll in all around them. Thunder booms. Almost immediately, Dream Team member Lynn Hill feels a stinging sensation racing up her spine. Her hair starts to stand on end. Fellow climber Greg Child shouts at her. Get down! Hill curls into a ball. A sound like a swarm of angry bees ripples through the air. It's electricity. The dream team are 13,000 feet up a remote mountain and caught in an electrical storm. After the buzzing stops, the climbers move fast. As they race onto a steep slope covered in slushy snow, Child hands Hill an ice axe. Take this. We gotta get out of here before we get zapped. Follow me. Hill follows Child through the snow, but then another team member shouts, Look out! Hill turns to see a wall of white rushing towards her. The avalanche slams into her, knocking her over the edge. She lashes out with the axe, but it just cuts through the soft snow. She slides down and down before coming to a stop. Hill lifts her head up and gasps. She's right on the edge of a deep crevasse. She's escaped death by mere inches. A few months later, Climbing Magazine runs a feature on the Dream Team's Kyrgyzstan adventures. Soon, the world's top alpinists are beating a path to the North Face, hoping to land a juicy sponsorship deal. And with every new Dream Team recruit, the North Face's reputation as gear maker for the pros rises. But while the North Face is finding new ways to boost sales, Patagonia's about to blow a hole in its finances. It's late 1995. And in Ventura, Patagonia is coming to the end of an 18-month struggle. Back in early 1994, the company got a shock when an environmental consultant told them that cotton, not polyester, was the most damaging fabric they used. The company's leadership team was alarmed by the consultant's revelations about how cotton fields are drenched in pesticides that leak into rivers and annihilate insect life. Patagonia vowed to quickly switch to organic cotton, but every step on the way has been a struggle. The limited supply of organic cotton forced them to shrink their range of cotton clothing, and most textile mills refused to work with it. 
But then, the company slammed into a wall. Organic farmers don't use pesticides. As a result, organic cotton is covered in sticky aphid honeydew that clogs up the mills. For a moment, it seemed like the entire project had been derailed. But then a textile mill in Thailand saved the day by freezing the cotton before spinning. Now, just one challenge remains. Cost. Organic cotton is three times the price of normal cotton, and someone's got to foot the bill. And in Patagonia's conference room, that's left the company's sales chief in despair. We can't raise prices 300%. Retailers and customers won't accept that. The team doesn't know what to do, but then one executive makes a bold suggestion. We could cut our profit margins and limit the retail price to no more than $10 above the competition. In most companies, that idea would be heresy. Patagonia sells $30 million worth of cotton clothes every year. Cutting margins will wipe out a major profit source. But this is Patagonia. And at Patagonia, values trump profits. One by one, the team members back the idea. They know it's going to hurt the company's bottom line. But the planet comes first. Patagonia is about to become the first major clothing brand to bring organic cotton to the market. A few weeks later, Patagonia's organic cotton clothes hit the stores and sales tank. Before the switch, customers could expect to pay $4 more for a Patagonia cotton t-shirt than one made by a rival like Columbia Sportswear. Now, the Patagonia tee costs $8 more. The higher price tags repel customers. Few of them care or know enough about cotton's environmental impact to pay more. The result is a double whammy of lowered sales and reduced margins that slashes the company's earnings from cotton products by a third. But after the initial hit, sales start crawling up again. The appeal of the Patagonia brand slowly overcomes people's aversion to the higher price point. What's more, Patagonia's move inspires apparel giants like Nike to consider using organic cotton, too. But while Patagonia is putting planet before profit, the North Face is adopting a more traditional path. It's July 1996, and on Wall Street, the North Face executive team and its investors are celebrating. This morning, the company floated on the NASDAQ. Stock opened at $14 and ended the day at $28. Now the company's got a $56 million war chest to play with, and CEO Bill Simons thinking big. Beaming with pride, Simon addresses the Wall Street investors and bankers who made it happen. Two years ago, we were bankrupt. Today, we deliver sales of $120 million a year, and there's bigger things to come. We intend to make the North Face a brand to rival Gap and Nike. By 2004, we're going to be a billion-dollar company. The investors applaud and cheer. But now that the North Face has raised Wall Street's expectations, it's got to deliver. And in its scramble to the top, the company will find itself looking over the precipice. Hey, Prime members, you can binge every episode of Business Wars ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. On the next episode, the North Face burns out. A jeans giant moves into the outdoor arena. And Patagonia doubles down on its principles. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We should say something about the conversations in this episode. Now, we can't know exactly what was said at the time, but this dialogue is based on our best research. If you'd like to learn more about Patagonia and the North Face, we would highly recommend Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Chouinard and Conquering the North Face by Hap Klopp. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.